postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Happy Monday, everyone. It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. It's a beautiful Monday here in Perth. We've been getting a lot of rain, and it's still pretty cloudy out there, but uh, it's, it's still a beautiful day, and I'm really excited to be here with you guys to wrap up the final episode of Understanding the Secular Mind. This has been awesome, guys. I've really enjoyed uh, doing this pot and art. I, I think I've, I've I find it, I have found it to be really pleasant, a pleasant experience, and I'm going to keep doing this thing. This is cool. I, I like it a lot better than having to come up with a random theme every week. So <laughs> um, so uh, watch this space for many more. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. And I've, I think I've also really enjoyed just the chance to equip, right, to train. This is basically the stuff I would talk about if I was doing a seminar somewhere, uh, doing some, some training seminar. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's podcast, so it becomes a podinar. Um, I didn't make that up, by the way. Someone else did. And I wish I had because I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's kind of groovy. But the bottom line is I've really enjoyed it. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten a lot out of this. And um, I hope that as this part in our series, uh, season one ends, that you walk away with a deeper understanding of the culture that surrounds us and, and how different the map, the mind maps that emerging secular culture uses to navigate reality how vastly different they are from the way in which we as believers navigate reality now if this is your first time listening and this is the first episode you're hearing you really gotta hit stop you gotta go back to episode one you gotta work your way because every episode builds on all the others and so um yeah if this is your first time hearing it please go back all right please listen to the other ones don't be a wise guy Okay, now, um, as we jump into episode seven, this is actually going to be the last episode. Um, I really, I initially thought there were going to be two more, but uh, no, there's only one more. This is it. We're closing it up with this one. Um, And so I want to do just a quick little recap of uh, what we've explored so far. And then I want to get into the final episode where we're going to be talking about uh, the local church, right? And, and the experience of redesigning the local Adventist church experience um, for secular mission, for secular outreach. Uh, so a quick, just a really, really quick recap, like so quick, you guys. And so for those of you who have are listening to this for the first time and you think, ha, huh, I'll just catch up on the recap, you will not. This thing's going to be so quick and so superficial <laughs> compared to everything we've explored so far that, yeah, please go back. Anyways, so we've talked uh, about the the shifts in, in culture, in generations from pre-modernism, where truth was centered in the religious uh, gravitas, right? The religious experience, the religious icon, the religious leader, and how this then transitioned uh, through the Enlightenment into the modern age where truth was centered in the scientific method. Um, and then this paved the way uh, for the postmodern age in with truth in which, whoa, I totally um, messed that very simple word up, um, in which truth 
was non-existent, right? It was not to be found in religion. It was not to be found in the scientific method. Uh, truth just didn't really exist. And we explored why those shifts took place, right? It's not like people just sitting in their house thinking, oh, I think uh, I'm going to go this way now. No, there were there were really significant global world events, traumatic events that led to these shifts in the way in which people mapped the world. And of course, the philosophers codified those shifts into what we now term postmodernity or or postmodernism. Um, and so within the postmodern ethos, we find ourselves navigating a world that is headed toward dystopia. We find ourselves with a cynical view on reality, with a, with a, with a cynical, dark take on human progress. And, and this became sort of a really depressing way of, <laughs> of navigating the world and, 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 and categorizing our experiences and our potential as human beings. But it was the thing, right? It was, it was the thing that, was, that, that we had arrived at because everything else had failed. However, postmodernism was not due to last forever. Uh, postmodernism is certainly on its way out. And as I speak of this, um, it's, it's very important to understand that when we talk about these shifts in generational, you know, in culture, um, they're not solid shifts. They bleed into each other. So, for example, pre-modernism didn't magically end when modernism started. Pre-modernism continued into modernism, right? Um, modernism didn't magically end when postmodernism started. Modernism continued into postmodernism. In fact, modernism still exists today, okay? It governs the scientific conversation. Uh, guys like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, um, uh, you know, apologists like William Lane Craig and John Lennox, these are modernist conversations that are, are deeply impactful on the culture today and people consider and they read and they attend the events. Um, and so modernism is not like modernism magically died, right? Postmodernism simply edged in and took over the cultural mood. And so people still might read, for example, you know, a book by Richard Dawkins. It just doesn't necessarily mean that they read it with the assumption that Richard Dawkins is a scientist, so everything he's saying here is going to be spot on, right? They, they kind of read it as just another way of trying to make sense of the world around them. And so postmodernism came in with this sort of cynical, um, you know, non-enthusiastic view of the future, which is the opposite of science, which is a very enthusiastic view of the future. Postmodernism is sort of like, yeah, you know, we are advancing as a species. We're advancing toward our own annihilation, right? Like, I mean, take a look at the atomic bomb. Take a look at World War One, World War Two. You know, it's crazy. And now we're in a space where... Um, from the 1970s onward, we've been transitioning into what uh, some have codified as the metamodern ethos. And the metamodern ethos is essentially an oscillation between the cynicism of postmodernism and the enthusiasm of modernism. In other words, it's trying, um, it's trying to recapture the enthusiasm because it's like, look, we can't live with this cynicism, right? So it's trying to recapture the enthusiasm of postmodernism without letting go of the cynicism inherent in postmodernism. So it's sort of an oscillation. And, and some people have referred to it as a paradox um, where you have you know enthusiasm and cynicism. I'm, I'm not so sure that it is a paradox, although it's probably too early to really narrow metamodernism down. Um, and if it's anything like postmodernism, we never will narrow it down. But basically, 
um, it seems like a, a, an oscillation. And the difference between a paradox and an oscillation is that in a paradox, there is sort of like a like a like a balance point, like a tipping point, right? A fulcrum between uh, one idea and the other. So like a paradox in scripture, for example, would be law and grace. Right. And, and there's a rhythm between the two that you have to find in order to get the paradox right. There's a fulcrum point uh, that balances them both out in a equal uh, in a healthy way toward in relation to one another. Oscillation is a bit different. Um, so there's a rhythm in paradox. There's no rhythm in oscillation. Um, it's a non-rhythmic back and forth between these two opposing ideals. And so as far as I understand metamodernism, it is this non-rhythmic back and forth between the enthusiasm of modernism and the cynicism of postmodernism and using this non-rhythmic back and forth as a way of mapping out the future and mapping out where we're headed. And so within this metamodern uh, experience, we're also seeing a resurgence in, in a desire for the beyond, right? We're seeing a resurgence in, in, in a thirst for, for myth and ritual and spirituality. There's no longer that sort of really deep skepticism and incredulity toward meta narratives that there was during the postmodern era. Uh, there's an openness now to that, although it comes with a whole lot of nuances and caveats, right? But there's an openness to that now. And if you want to explore this some more, right? If you want to be on the absolute sort of like cutting edge of this conversation and uh, where we are headed now as a culture, then I really want to recommend the book Game of Gods by Carl Teichrib. I believe his name is Teichrib. Yeah. Game of Gods, the Temple of Man in the Age of Re-Enchantment by Carl Teichrib. I don't know if that's how you, Teichrib. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his surname. Um, sorry, Carl, if you hear this, I did my best, bro. I did my best. Um, but real cutting edge stuff um, on the edge of, uh, and I'm going to um, refer to some of that book today in our final episode. Um, and yeah, so basically the bottom line is with the metamodernist sort of ethos coming into and shifting the mood of the culture, we are seeing a resurgence back toward um, spiritual themes and meta metaphysical themes. Uh, there's this sort of a misnomer that uh, all secular people are like atheists who don't believe in God. It's it's not true. In fact, I believe from the from the latest uh, studies, atheism still remain, remains a minority view uh, in in the culture. Most people do not identify as atheists. Perhaps agnostic or um, some other sort of uh, you know ism, but uh, there's definitely a, a strong cultural affinity toward the existence of the divine, the sublime, the transcendent, what some would call God, what others would call the universe. Uh, it's there. It's there, right? And so the way in which people have mapped reality through, throughout all this is by wrestling with what the existential philosopher Albert Camus referred to as the absurdity of life. And absurdity specifically refers to the tension between your inward desire for meaning and the universe mocking that desire because there is no meaning right you have that you have that raging haunting but you know it's just there's no meaning and so in the clash between meaninglessness the desire for meaning and the reality of meaninglessness absurdity emerges from that clash 
And so, you know, how do you, how do you then map your life out, right? How do you make meaning? How do you, uh, how do you navigate uh, suffering and, and trial and tension and chaos? Like, how do you navigate that? Um, and so in this sense, we've explored the, the, the modes of navigation that people often use and the, the equilibrium that they aim for as they try to navigate this chaos consciousness. And ultimately, perhaps one of the most um, eye-opening experiences that you can have as you're, ex- you know, having these conversations and journeying through this, this, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion, so to speak, is that you discover that um, in the in the secular mind, as difficult or as crazy as absurdity sounds from a faith place, right? We're coming from a faith place, and we look at absurdity, and we're like, "Well, that's a terrible way to live." But within the cultural experience, it's actually a liberating way to live. That no meaning, I believe it was Sartre, right? Was it Sartre? No meaning is relief. And it's like, okay, like there is no meta narrative or, you know, even though there's a, there's a, like I said earlier, there's an inching back toward a meta narrative. It comes with incredible amount of nuances and, and uh, stipulations, right? And so there, there is no, essentially there is no grand moral absolute that claims or that stakes a claim a coercive claim over my life i am free to create my own map i am free to write my own bible and uh that that is that you know that is that is where most of the culture is and so anyways uh, look we talked about so much more but i think if i start trying to you know summarize the whole thing we'll, we'll be here forever um, but essentially, in our previous episode, we talked about then the need for evangelical or evangelistic elasticity, that in this tension that we find, culture then emerges as this very fragmented thing. And this whole idea that you can then reach this culture with this one model and this one approach and this one language and this, this, this one method is nonsense. We need to develop evangelistic elasticity we need to inhabit our secular communities we need to incarnate with our secular neighbors we need to listen we need to build relationships we need to show sympathy we need to build rapport we need to bond with the people around us and as we do that we really get to know their hearts and then we can develop locally contextualized approaches to the the mission that is going to be effective in the local space uh, and so we need to step away from this centralized big event evangelistic series with a speaker coming from, you know, traveling from somewhere outside of your city. Um, although I'm not saying that you got to throw that in the garbage. I think with some tweaks, we can still do that well. Um, they're going to be pretty big tweaks, but I think it can. The, the public evangelist, traveling public evangelist will still have a place. But there has to be a deeply, deeply, deeply committed future to our local context and understanding our local context and bonding with our local context and then developing models of evangelism, art, um, frameworks, language, whatever it might be in order to spread the gospel meaningfully in that space. Uh, And so that's kind of where we left off. And what I wanted to do today was I wanted to talk about the experience of the local church. Now, before we do that, though, I I want you to use your imagination. You're going to use your imagination a lot in this last episode. 
So there was a an American anthropologist by the name of Horace Minor. And Horace Minor tells of a strange society whom he refers to as the Nasarima, right? The Nasarima society. A tribe of people that he described as mysterious and secretive. Now this was, I think this was in the 1980s or maybe even earlier where Horace Minor spoke about the Nasarima. And in time, Minor writes that he was able to establish enough rapport with the natives to observe their rituals and beliefs. And what made this society so strange, according to Minor, is that its people operated according to a particular worldview. Right? They, they had a map for reality. And the map was predicated on this belief that every single member of the tribe was plagued by a disease that degenerated their physical bodies. And so in order to counteract the disease, right, because this was basically their entire tribe, all their rituals, everything revolved around counteracting the disease, right? So in order to counteract the disease, they would, they would build these shrines of marble that were erected within their living spaces. And it was here in, in these shrines of marble where they stored magical portion or potions and charms and when they combined these magical potions and charms with the right rituals, it was said to to reverse the effects of the decay. But this was only the beginning, right? So, so Minor goes on to tell a, a, about how the, the members of the tribe were obsessed with their mouths. It's strange stuff, you guys, strange stuff. So the members of this tribe, they were obsessed with their mouths and they would often endure ritual torture, which was almost like an exorcism, was designed to remove anything undesirable from their mouths in order to increase their social desirability. And during this process, Minor also observed what he referred to as the holy mouth man. Uh, and and this, this holy mouth man would employ a, a variety of augers and awls and probes and prods in this ceremony, which despite what he also described as unbelievable ritual torture, most tribal members repeated the ceremony every year despite the fact by the way that it didn't cure their disease so minor being a good anthropologist keeps observing and so he goes on at some length describing other oddities of the nasarima he talks about their temples the rituals observed in these temples and the fact that for some strange reason many of the nasarima who enter the temple are never seen again. In fact, among the young in the tribe, it was said that the temple was the place you go to die. So Minor continues by exploring in, in his paper on the Nasarima. I'm just summarizing here to bring to bring this to a close. He, he keeps exploring some of the more bizarre practices of the Nazarima, right? So for example, women placing their heads in ovens for up to an hour. Uh, their witch doctors, whom he referred to as the listeners, and their curses and counter magic. In the end, Minor concludes that he is surprised that these magic-ridden people have survived so long under the burdens which they have imposed upon themselves. But the biggest surprise in Minor's 
paper of the Nasarima comes when we discover that the Nasarima were merely everyday modern Americans. That the word Nasarima is American spelled backward. That the disease they fear is the natural process of aging. That the shrines are their bathrooms, the potions and charms, their beauty treatments, the holy mouth man, their dentist, the temples, their hospitals, the ovens, beauty salon, hair dryers, the listener, witch doctor, a psychologist, and so on. So what Miner has simply done is he's examined American culture. Obviously, it's back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, right? He's examined American culture from the perspective of a person who is entirely unfamiliar with it. So for us, all this stuff's normal. But what if someone completely unfamiliar with our culture walked in and observed us? Miner suggests that this is maybe exactly what they see. This might be exactly how they describe it. And so in this sense, uh, Shahar Fisher of The Cultural Reader explains that if we distance ourselves and our point of view, a culture will always look peculiar to us. So understanding these above scenarios, right, should lead us to distance ourselves from our customs as a church and appreciate how weird a typical local Adventist church would be from the perspective of a post-church secular mind. Now, maybe Miner's Nasarima hasn't really helped you appreciate that. So let me let me switch gears and and explore this. I want you to keep using your imagination here, right? We're going to switch gears. I want you to use your imagination. If you're not driving the car, I want you to close your eyes because I really want you to paint this picture, okay? Imagine you're invited to a church, uh, a worship gathering out in the desert. So it's not church as you're typically used to it. You're invited to this worship gathering out in the desert. And when you arrive, you realize everyone is wearing electric costumes. What is an electric costume, you ask? Good question. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. You never even heard of the thing. It's a costume with blinking lights, electric costume. So a lot of people are wearing electric costumes. Not everyone. A lot of people are wearing these electric costumes with blinking lights, and they're walking around as they're waiting for their worship gathering to commence. How weird do you feel right now? I mean, how weird would you have felt simply going to some worship gathering in the desert that you're just like, I've never done that before. This is This is weird. How weird would that be? And maybe you can begin to appreciate how weird it is for post-church secular people to get an invitation to church or to get a flyer in the mail to come to a church event. It's like, uh, no, thank you. That's weird, right? So you come you come to this gathering. People are wearing electric costumes, blinking lights. It's really bizarre. 
you look around you and you see other people walking around in these post-apocalyptic wardrobes, right? They look like they came straight out of a Mad Max movie or, or, you know, one of the seasons of the 100. And maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's a good thing because uh, you don't need to know what I'm talking about for this example to work. In fact, the less you know what I'm talking about, the better I think you'll appreciate what I'm trying to get at. People walking around in post-apocalyptic wardrobes, ripped leather pants and tribal markings and tattoos and gravity-defying hairstyles. And all around, as you're sort of looking, you see this bizarre display. All of a sudden, you hear laughing and you turn around and there's a, a group of ladies coming into the gathering and they're all riding bicycles. And they're wearing these elaborate kind of like science fiction themed bikinis and the girl at the front on her bicycle is also uh she's she's riding her bicycle one arm on the handlebars and the other arm is holding this steampunk umbrella and she's got a cape fl- flying behind her as the wind <laughs> brushes against her on her bike on her bicycle And you're like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And then all of a sudden, the crowd goes silent as someone in a Mad Hatter outfit comes to the microphone. Mad Hatter outfit. This is weirder than Alice in Wonderland, although eerily familiar. The Mad Hatter outfit guy comes to the microphone. He's got lipstick and eyeliner and makeup and long nails, the Mad Hatter hat and the jacket opened to a bare chest and leather pants, sort of like a wine red. And he's barefooted. And he starts to speak. And he says to the crowd, it's time, the time has come to spread the message of human potential through your personal awakening to non-separation. Now you're sitting there, you're like, what, 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 wait a minute, wait, stop, pause, pause, like non-separation, personal, what are you talking about? And he just goes on and he's talking about inner placement and connection and synchronicity and expansion toward the transcendental he speaks of the sublime kairos of the numinous and the experience of ecstasis he his message is about the annihilation of the individual ego a trip into the inner dimension of experience all with one goal in mind an awakening to oneness a utopia of we a collective unity or or rather a unity of collective divinity non-secondness and planetary experience everything being subsumed into its whole. You have no idea what this guy is saying. But there he is. And he's saying it. As soon you realize as you look around you. Everybody else gets it. And you and you lean over to your friend. And you're like what, what's going on? And your friend says. Oh we're just. He's just speaking. Um, he's just speaking about. Uh, our, our, our experience as a cosmic citizenship. And you're like, what? By the way, in case you were wondering, most of these examples come from Carl Teichrib's Game of Gods. 
And your friend says, yeah, you know, the cosmic citizens, those who deny yesterday's God and his destructive separateness. And you're about to say what again when a couple dressed in jester outfits walk up to you, the speech is now over, and they're laughing and smiling and they're probably drinking something intoxicating because they're laughing and smiling a bit weird while holding these long skinny cups with neon green stuff in it. And they invite you to a ritual. They say, hey, come tonight because tonight the white procession begins. Come to the ritual. And off they go. And you're like, okay, the white procession. This is bizarre. But you decide to go. And when you get there, everyone is dressed in white. And they have white ash on their faces. And white beads hanging from their hair. And white twine covers their hair like dreadlocks. And the person leading the ritual begins to speak. This is a collective intention-setting ceremony. We're going to set our intentions. We're going to place them on the love altar. And we will deliver these to the temple after the man burn. All right. Open your eyes. The scene is over. <laughs> How weird was that? And yet, I just described what is perhaps a standard experience at the Burning Man Festival, which takes place quite regularly, and which thousands of people attend. You can Google it, the Burning Man Festival. Not while you're driving. I am all for driving safely, you guys. Yeah, the Burning Man Festival. Typical experience at the Burning Man Festival. And for those in the festival, none of this is weird. None of it is bizarre. The language makes total sense. But for you, as a first-time guest, you're like, what in the world are these people wearing? What in the world are these people saying? What in the world are these people doing? It makes no sense. And this is the experience that post-church people have when they come to the typical traditional Adventist church. What in the world are these people wearing? Who dresses like that anymore? It's like they just walked into a 1950s movie set. What in the world are these people saying? Anti-typical Day of Atonement, 144,000 Spirit of Prophecy. What? And what in the world are these people doing? We're going to wash each other's feet before we drink the blood of Jesus. It's like, what? See, what these examples do, both Horace Miners and the Burning, Va Burning Man Festival example, what they do I hope, anyways, is that they show us the need to articulate and translate what we do as a church in a way that makes sense to people who aren't raised in our church. Because, to quote again from Shahar Fisher, if we distance ourselves and our point of view, a culture will always look peculiar to us 
And this is what the world looks or what the world sees when they come to a typical Adventist church. What we find normal and wonderful is to a world immersed in absurdity, totally weird, obscene, and not even in a good way, right? It's cool for something to be weird and it's like, but it's cool. You know, it's like, oh, I get that. Yeah, it's weird, but I like it. No, no, no. This is weird and it's just weird. It makes no sense. It has no transference or utility for the modern age. So while I want to explore this in detail in, in maybe future Padanars, we'll talk about our doctrines and how we articulate our doctrines. I'm not going to get into that now. For now, I want to at least suggest that connecting with secular culture calls us to a complete redesign of the local church model. One that distances itself from these bizarre traditional expectations and instead approximates primitive biblical faith. Oh man, there's so much I could say about that. I just want to start the conversation here and invite you guys to continue it. And in the future, we'll talk about it some more. But I love what Francis Chan wrote some time ago because I feel like in this statement, Francis Chan captures the non-cool weirdness of the local church. Francis Chan says this. Church today has become predictable. You go to a building, someone gives you a bulletin, you sit in a chair, you sing a few songs, a guy delivers maybe a polished message, maybe not. Someone sings a solo, you go home. Chan then asks, is that all God intended for us? To which each of us should, should shout like, no, that is not what God intended for us. However, the difficulty is that we've gotten so used to the greeter, whose face is aching from all the four smiling, by the way, right? We've gotten so used to the droning liturgy, to the preacher who for some reason still preaches from the King James English that nobody speaks anymore, to the grizzled songs, to the quaint instruments, to the flat, harsh pews. We've gotten so comfortable with the long, boring, and unsurprising that we never stop to think just how obscene the whole thing we call church really is. And so what I want to do in today's episode is invite you and I to distance ourselves from our customs long enough to observe just how anomalous and unnecessary they really are. Because only when we see them from the outside, only when we see them through the eyes of a mind navigating the world through absurdity, only then will we have the foundation necessary to redesign for mission. And maybe then we can join in the poetic strings of David Crowder who once sang, I'm so bored of little gods. While standing on the edge of something large, while standing here so close to you, we could be consumed. So where do we go from here? Well, I've written and said quite a lot over the years on redesigning the local church. Uh, tons of episodes of that on my podcast where I go into different experiences and explanations 
and uh, looking at the things that get in the way of cultural outreach and how we can redesign them. So I'm not going to reproduce all that now. You can go back and you can check those episodes out. In fact, um, I'll create a playlist uh, titled Redesigning the Local Church and put all those episodes in that playlist. So you can find them in one easy place at thestorychurchproject.com slash podcast. Or if you just go to my regular podcast uh, on SoundCloud, the playlist will be there as well. Um, so it'll all be there. I don't want to reproduce all that. But what I wanted to do in this final episode of Understanding the Secular Mind, I didn't want to go into like all the details. Oh, you should change this. Or you should change that. Um, because that's that's tricky and messy. And sometimes it's a fun conversation to have that never translates to anything because depending on your local context, you may never even be able to take step one. Um, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to give you guys an appreciation of the secular mind as it steps into our nucleus, our sphere, our space, how bizarre is that? Wouldn't it be better if you went to the Burning Man Festival and your friend explained to you a little bit of what it was going to be about and maybe, you know, got you a costume so you wouldn't be the only one sitting there with a shirt and a tie. And maybe the guy in the Mad Hatter outfit used words that you could actually understand. Maybe that would be better. Now, of course, the point of the Burning Man Festival is to be weird, right? They're speaking an inner language. And that's how they roll. But the purpose of the church is different. The purpose of the church is to articulate the heart of God into the culture. And this means that our language needs to adapt, that our style needs to adapt, that our model needs to adapt, that our culture needs to adapt. We cannot stay the same. We cannot copy and paste. In some places, going to church in a suit and a tie might work. In others, jeans and a t-shirt will work. In some places, going to a church that has a centralized program might work. In others, it might be a house network that works. The bottom line is we have to translate. We have to articulate. We have to remove all unnecessary barriers for people to come to Christ. Like, was it Paul who said it? At the Jerusalem Council, let us not make things difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Right? Following Jesus is already hard enough. Following Jesus is already countercultural enough. Following Jesus is already costly enough. We don't need to make it worse. By adding unnecessary cultural preferences, traditions that we like and demanding that of people when Jesus himself doesn't demand that. Having a church at 9 a.m. might work in one place. Someplace else, your main gathering might have to be at 3 p.m. Hymns might work at yours. At mine, it might have to be contemporary songs. And maybe the best way forward is for us to appreciate the culture, 
for us to appreciate the difficulty that is presented for someone when they step into a church. And maybe then, maybe if we get that, maybe we have that shared love for the culture and that shared appreciation of the absurdity and obscenity that they would experience walking into our typical churches, maybe then we can celebrate different expressions of our own faith and our own church culture without criticism. Maybe then we can say, as, as, as one older member of the church said to me, I don't understand what you're doing, but I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that God blesses you and gives you success. Because the truth is, the world that we inhabit now maps its way through life in such a distinct way that reaching them will require something totally distinct. Now, I want to begin to conclude this. That's a strange statement. I want to begin to conclude. I guess what I meant was I'm just, I'm concluding. I'm ending, guys. Adventists seeking to reach secular culture. In a way, we have to begin from the path of regress in which we learn to appreciate the absurdity of life, understand the beauty in navigating, escaping, and celebrating this absurdity, and learn to connect with the conceptual and soul language that this experience creates. From there, we must understand the fragmentation of contemporary society and how evangelistic elasticity and a redesigned local Adventist church are the foundations for crafting a meaningful approach to connecting with the culture. Now, with these introductory elements in place, I can now conclude understanding the secular mind. Padernar season one. Oh, that was awesome, guys. I was trying to be like really epic and like climactic there. Um, I think I think I did. I, I think I was. Let me know. Marcus, that was really climactic. Oh. Could have used a bit of music, maybe. There's gonna be more stuff coming, guys. More stuff coming. More Potternar seasons coming. You can go through the archives as well. Particularly with this episode, you might be close and thinking, man, I would love some actual like actionable steps and tips oh man i got so many episodes on that like i said i'll make a playlist for you go check it out redesigning the local church will be the name of the playlist um what else what else what else ah yes before i say goodbye man it's almost here you guys the bible study set uh for studying the bible with uh, secular culture with secular friends um i just got the author copy uh, last week, I've been looking through it. It's got some edits, you know, I'm reading through it, just identifying any last minute things that we need to change. Uh, and then it is going to go live. So keep your eye out on my Instagram and Facebook page because I'll be posting some pictures of the um, of the book now that I've got it in my hands. And you can get a look at it from, uh, you know, from that angle, which is pretty cool. Um, anyways, all right, guys, I want to wish you the best. I want to pray the Holy Spirit would empower you and fill you. And I want to pray that he would lead you into a deeper understanding of the secular culture that surrounds you in your local context, in your local setting. And the secular culture that surrounds you is not static, it's dynamic. What we've explored in this series, it's going to continue to edge and uh, ebb and flow. It's going to continue to change. It's not going to be the same a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. It's always going to be adapting the impact of social media, 
the current political climate, pandemic, all of these things. Uh, these are the necessary traumatic experiences that give birth to new new ways of mapping reality. And so let's stay connected. Let's stay loving. Let's stay bonding with the world around us, listening to their hearts, and then reframing our message of hope for them. Let me pray for you, Father in heaven. I pray for everyone who's listened to the entire Understanding the Secular Mind Padanar series. Season one has concluded, but I want to lift them up to you, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill them Fill us, Lord, because at the end of the day, it isn't even about knowing this stuff. It's about being filled with your spirit because culture is always going to be changing. There's always going to be something we don't know about the world around us. But you know them, Lord. You know them deeply. You love them. You died for them. And your spirit is out there. While we're sitting here listening to a podcast, your spirit is out there moving through their lives and their homes and their families and their circumstances, tugging at their hearts, calling them towards yourself. And so I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, because when we are filled with your spirit, you can lead us to those people whose hearts you have awakened to your love and your invitation. And then we can be a part of navigating their faith journey with them in a way that makes sense to them. So thank you, God, for this opportunity. And uh, yeah, bless us in this journey and in this mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.